right, thank you, Amy. So um, this is um, our Learner Gallery, and it is named for our first uh, director, Abram Lerner. And in this gallery are installed two artworks by Lauren Sweener, um, a rubber ball thrown on the sea and reduced, um, repeated many different times on the window. Many of you who are familiar with the Hirschhorn probably know that for many years, I think more than a decade, looked it up this morning, we had Solowit murals, two very beautiful, colorful Solowit murals on the walls in here. Um, and part of the idea between At the Hub of Things was to really rethink our collection. Instead of having a traditionally chronological or monographic approach to the collection, we decided to do a thematic approach. And so we decided that part of that we had to really think, rethink what we were doing in this space. The Learner Room is where we actually throw many of our public events. And so the Cardinal's rule of museums is that you cannot have food and drink and artworks in the same space. So we were limited in some of the things that we, we wanted to show in here because if we had put paintings or sculptures in here, we would have had to take them down every time we had an event in here. So it seemed logical to find someone like Lawrence Wiener, who is a conceptual artist along the same lines as Sala Witt, but is doing something distinctly different. So Wiener is considered to be one of the leaders of conceptual art, along with artists such as Robert Berry, Sala Witt, Joseph Kossuth. Um, he was an, these were a group of artists who were loosely working together. They, in no way would they call themselves a group or a movement. But they coalesced around this idea that when thinking about a work of art, it didn't necessarily have to have a material form, it didn't have to be an object, and that craftsmanship wasn't an issue anymore. Instead, what they considered to be the most important part about making an artwork was the idea or the concept behind it. Now, Wiener and his contemporaries, including non-conceptual artists like Frank Stella or pop artists like Andy Warhol, were coming of age in the kind of what is very much a long shadow of abstract expressionism. Artists such as Jackson Pollock and Barnett Newman had been really dominating the American art scene since the, the late 40s and the early 50s. And they had put forth this idea that the artists had some kind of special knowledge or the kind of ideas that they were trying to express in their art were either highly emotional, highly personal, or were somehow transcendent. And so someone like Lawrence Wiener thought, well, these are kind of tired, and I'm not so sure that the artist is necessarily a creative genius. And so what he did was try to think about how he could make works of art that really undermined what were considered to be the essential principles of abstract expressionism. So one of his earliest works he ever made was a piece called The Stone on, a t on the Table. And what it was was a piece of limestone that he found placed on a prefabricated or you know, just everyday table. And that was the work of art. As the 60s progressed, he started making more performative works of art, um, artworks that were actions. And this is part of a larger movement in the 60s when artists started making performance-oriented works. You had happenings, you had fluxus. There were all these ideas that were challenging the idea of what a work of art should be. And so Wiener started making some more performance pieces, and one of them was called An Amount of Paint Poured Directly Upon the Floor and Allowed to Drive, or another one was A Wall Cratered by a Single Shotgun Blast. And when he was making these pieces and then naming them with these descriptions, he really asked the question, well, where's the artwork? Is the artwork the performance or the action? Is the artwork the object that might result from that? So if you spray paint on the floor, is the actual artwork the, the pile of paint that's on the floor? Or is the artwork the description itself? 
1958, he issued um, his first artist book, one of many. Wiener, over the years, has done many different artist books, and it was called Statements. And what it consisted of was 24 pages each with a typewritten statement on it. Um, some of these works were descriptions of works that he had made before. So he, he had, at one point, had made a piece called Cratering Piece. And in Statements, it took the form of a field cratered by structured simultaneous TNT explosions. The important thing about the book Statements was is that it wasn't all works of art that he had created before. Some of these were new works of art. So what he was suggesting was, actually, you don't need a material form at all. It can just be a description or a statement. And so the following year, I think he is probably one of the most important years in Wiener's career. He set out um, what he called a statement of intent. And it's, it's amazing. Since 1969, when he issued this, he's really followed these guidelines um, pretty strictly. So the statement of intent reads, the artist may construct the piece. The piece may be fabricated. The piece need not be built. Each being equal and consistent with the intent of the artist, the decision as to condition rests with the receiver upon the occasion of receivership. And I think that's just a more complicated way of saying the, the person who sees the work of art and interprets the work of art is as important as the artist himself. And then in 1970, he added a corollary which said, if the piece is built, it constitutes not how the piece looks, but only how it could look. And so what he's saying there is that the physical manifestation of the work of art is only one possibility among others. It can take any form of work of all. And when you think about that, putting that up against a painting, which is a unique object created by an individual with a set amount of materials, with a certain kind of idea, and it's attached directly to that artist, it's a really absolutely radical idea. Um, after, one of the things he did in 1969 also is he began to describe his works as either general or specific. Um, the Hirschhorn's two pieces, a rubber ball thrown on the sea and reduced, are both general. They're very open-ended. They don't relate to anything specific. It's really up to the receiver to imagine what they might relate to. Specific ones might be something more akin to a single can of white enamel paint sprayed upon the floor for two minutes. I'm probably paraphrasing that because I don't think I got that exactly right. But the idea is that some artworks describe things that were much more specific, whether it be the material, the color, how long the performance or the artwork lasted, or anything else that related to it. But again, remember, none of this ever has to happen, and it doesn't have to be done by the artist as well. Um, you have to think about Wiener in the context of the 1960s. You're talking about the late 1960s. You've got the Vietnam War going in America. You've got, you know, a kind of a revolt against the government, student protests. Wiener and the artists working in New York were very engaged in that. I mean, this sounds like it's some kind of very conceptual, highfalutin idea. What is an art object? I mean, what are the limits of art? What are the definitions of art? But in fact, this is a really quite a political move, especially for someone like Wiener. A lot of artists in New York at this time were beginning to think that the art world was too elite. The idea that you could only see contemporary artworks in commercial galleries that only a few people went to in Soho, a place that was barely inhabited in the 1960s, and that museums weren't showing it very often, or that the only people who actually owned these works of art were wealthy collectors who didn't see them as radical gestures against the definition of art, but instead saw them as something, a commodity, that could simply be bought, sold, and if you were really lucky, you could make money off of. Someone like Robert Smithson um, and Michael Heiser, who went out into the landscape and made artworks that no one could buy you know, spiral jetting a piece in the middle of the Salt Lake. Really, no one can own that piece. That's the same kind of thinking. Or you have someone like Walter Di Maria who filled the gallery in Soho with dirt. So you couldn't get in the gallery. So you can only go to the gallery. You can see the piece. You can smell the piece. Actually, it's still on view when you're going in there. But the idea is that nobody can buy the piece. So what Wiener is doing here is he saw 
his work as inherently populist. And he actually saw it as an antidote to the elitism of the art world. Because if the work of art has no specific material form, nobody can own it. And that also means it can appear anywhere. It can be moved. It can be multiple. It could be on a wall in Soho. It could be on the street. It could be a manhole cover. It could be a match, matchbook. Whatever it is, it takes no material form. And everyone can have it. But of course, that's a really idealistic idea because ultimately you are selling these as works of art. So Wiener, like many other artists, came up with the idea of how, how does someone buy this work of art? How does someone own this work of art? Because ultimately people were interested in buying works of art and he had to deal with the logistics of it. So like many conceptual artists, he started issuing certificates of authenticity. So when you bought a work of art, you would get a certificate of authenticity that basically you own the piece. When you sold the piece, you would hand that certificate of authenticity to somebody else. Now, we bought both of these pieces from um, Giuseppe Ponza, who's an extraordinary collector living in Italy, who amassed just an amazing collection of post-war American and European art. And so I was curious, because I wanted to see, well, what are our certificates of authenticity? So I went down to our registrar's office, and I should say that these certificates of authenticity are in a locked drawer, behind a locked door. They're actually, because they are actually what proved that we own the artwork. If we lost the certificate of authenticity, we wouldn't own it anymore. So I'm gonna pass these around. So the first thing I found was a typewritten page. It was blue, but I'm not allowed to bring the original up here. And it says reduced in capital letters. Lawrence Wiener, okay? Oh my gosh. And I'm assuming, and mind you, I didn't have enough time to do a lot of research. I'm assuming this is originally what Wiener issued as his certificate of authenticity. There's nothing there that says certificate of authenticity, but given the way Lawrence Wiener works, I think this makes total sense. So then I thought, okay, well, maybe I can find one for a rubber ball thrown on the sea as well, but I found something different. And this is a letter from an attorney at law, Ordover Rosenberger and Rosen, based in New York, and it's addressed to Giuseppe Panzer. And it says, Dear Sir, I am in receipt of the registration in your name of the following piece by Lawrence Wiener, a rubber ball thrown on the sea, and then handwritten, it says catalog 146, and it's signed. So now you have a lawyer involved. And I don't know enough about how Ponza collected, whether he acquired reduced first, and that's when he got the first time, and by the time, and these, years, these pieces are only a year apart. Um, a rubber ball thrown on the sea is from 69, and reduced is from 70. But now you have a lawyer involved, and I'm not sure, unfortunately, if this is the artist having to bring a lawyer involved, because having a piece of blue paper that just says reduced with a name on it isn't enough, or whether this is Giuseppe Ponza, who wants to have proof that he paid for something and that he actually owns it. And then the third one I found, because our files are so awesome, is something from 1972 from the same lawyer. And it says, Dear Sir, I am in receipt of the registration in your name of the following piece by Lawrence Wiener, number 102 reduced. And then it has a, like, a certificate or a, a notarization from somebody in Switzerland. So it's gotten inherently more complicated. And so you know, if I had a lot of time, and if Giuseppe Ponzo was alive, and unfortunately he's not anymore, what I think is interesting here is this idea that anybody can own the work and that a certificate of authenticity might just be a tight statement, that as Lawrence Wiener became more important as an artist and his works became more valuable, or let's just call them more appreciated if we don't want to talk them in a commodified form, if they became more appreciated, it gets more complicated. And again, I don't know if this is the artist's doing or this is Ponza. From what I know about Ponza, I suspect part of this might be Ponza. But it's interesting to think about this idea that Anybody can own the work of art, and you just get a certificate of authenticity, and that's the end of the day. And clearly, that didn't work for time, uh, for a time. 
So as I said, we acquired these works in 2007 as part of a broader acquisition of really quite extraordinary works by Giuseppe Panza. And I was lucky enough to work on that show. And so the first time we installed these pieces, we installed them in, um, according to the designs, Panza and I kind of co-curated the show together because Panza had known these artists. He has an extraordinary home in Italy where he has many site-specific commissions by, by artists from this period. And so when they were shown there, a rubber ball thrown on the seat was written very small and vinyl in one of our small core galleries and reduced with the entire escalator lobby on two. And it was great. And we didn't even approach the artist about it because you don't have to. And Ponzo and I decided not to. The next time, a couple of years later, um, I was tasked with trying to find something to install in our third floor escalator lobby, uh, which is a very difficult space. You've got escalators, you've got noise, you've got, it's not a very hospitable place to paintings, which is what I would normally put in a space like that. So I thought, oh, let's put the Lawrence Wiener up. This is easy. And so what we did is we approached the artist, because as a rule at the Hirschhorn, and this is just in general, artists have better ideas than curators. So I wrote a letter, to, to, I wrote an email to Lawrence Wiener, and it basically said, we own this piece. We'd like to install it. Do you have any ideas? And the wonderful thing about Wiener is if, if approached by a collector or by a museum and given details of the space, he'll suggest something. He'll suggest how you might show the piece. And then at the end of the email, it says something to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing here, or you can do whatever you want. <laughs> so you can do that. So he came up with this wonderful idea of just saying, writing a rubber ball thrown on the sea in this blue, no black outline. And it looks great because he would come up through the escalator lobby and see this wonderful piece. And it, it was so simple, yet it dominated a very difficult space. And so when we decided to put his two works in this space, again, knowing that artists always have better ideas than curators, I wrote him an email, and I said, well, the Abram Lerner room, this is the, this is the room that is named for our first director. Not only is it one of the most prominent spaces in the, in the, in the building, and it's where we hold all of these events, did I mention that it has these very large windows that face out? Mall. So we took these panoramic pictures and we sent him diagrams and plans and pictures and we sent them to them and we said, would you, would you suggest something? A week or two later, something comes back and we looked at it and we thought, well, that's okay. And of course the email again said, but you may do what you wish because there's always that out. You don't have to listen to the artist. He's willing to give you a suggestion, but you don't have to listen to it. So we thought to ourselves, well, I think we can do something better because it didn't really dominate, the design didn't dominate the space. I mean, this is a big space, and we thought, well, with these two pieces, we could really dominate this space. So we went back to it, and I wrote another email that said, I don't think I was clear. This is a wonderful space, it has the only windows onto the mall. Perhaps you, you would, by the way, did I mention you would be the only art in this space? And he came up with this wonderful design. And what I love about this installation, this design, I was thrilled. The email came. And I was just absolutely thrilled. It's the way he installed a rubber ball thrown on the sea, these kinds of ups and downs. It almost suggests a rubber ball bouncing, but it doesn't necessarily have to do that. And then reduced, of course, I would have never thought to do this, is to put the word reduced, repeat it over, over, and over again, going forwards and backwards. So it can be read from the mall. And I've tested this. If you go out at night and stand on the mall in exactly a perfect place, you can actually read the words up here, too. So I think Wiener, what he did here was really take on and owned this space, the idea that it, we are calling out to the mall. And I should mention, you know, to all the people who are walking past this mall, really kind of the center of democracy, one might call it. But I have to say, I was having um, lunch a couple weeks ago with um, Harry Cooper, who's the curator of modern and contemporary art at the National Gallery. And I said, oh, did you see, you know, we were walking back, and I said, oh, did you see the Lawrence Wiener? Look, he put him on the windows. And Harry looked at me and he goes, yeah, it's great. It's almost like the Hirschhorn's on sale. I was like, oh, <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. So that's another interpretation. So that's one thing to give you 
an overview of Lawrence Wiener and how this came to look like this and why, as, as someone tweeted yesterday, we didn't just scribble it on the walls in pencil, but we could have if we had wanted to. Um, I'm assuming this will be up for at least another year and a half as long as that the hub of things is up and then we'll have to find something else to do. Does anyone have any questions about Lawrence Wiener or our installation in this space? Um, the uh, font that's used, I don't remember that it was broken before, so was that something he suggested? That was something he suggested. He suggested that, and I think it is interesting. Like, this yeah. has an he's probably best known for this non-sensory font, usually with the black outline, often with blue or other colors. Okay. Up for grabs. That everything is up for grabs, but this is what he suggested for us. He sent us a, um, oh, I can't remember, some kind of computer program, what they, used, what they used to call CAD programs, but it's now called something else that I don't know the name of that architects and, and, and designers use. And so he actually, he sent us a CAD file and said, if you'd like to use this, you can use this. So yes, technically we could have, but I guess if you're thinking about the idea of the Hirschhorn being on sale, those little breaks in the text actually make it suggest something more graphic, more public. And again, for sale, possibly, at a very reduced price. Any other questions? Well, yeah, um, it's funny because you were talking about the reduced looking in. And out. And when I look out mm -hmm. from here, I wondered if he was, if it was a statement on the mall. The mall. Well, I can't. I've got yeah. some much better <laughs> interpretation. But you're right. It's, and what it is, it's this play between the interaction between inside, outside, museum, national mall. And, and basically, I mean, I think it's also interesting to think about this kind of awkward relationship of having the nation's contemporary art museum right on the mall where all the politicians can walk by. And, and I think people often think it's a very odd place to have a museum like this. Are there any other questions? Uh -huh. when I, I think about um, indeterminacy and I think about John Cage and, and other artists working in different media. Uh -huh. So um, was Wiener also kind of in that same sort of uh, you know, circle that was yeah, he was, and you know, he did make objects for a long time, and I, I'm afraid I don't know his relationship to Cage and Johns. They were all working in New York City, and they must have all been aware of what was going on with each other. I'm sure they were all attending things, and especially because Wiener had an interest in performance, he was probably aware. Um, he's made objects along the line, and they definitely don't seem like typical art objects. This idea of indeterminacy might there, but I'm, I'm assuming there's a dialogue. There's, and you know, this idea of chance. You put an artwork out there, you describe an artwork, and it can show up anywhere. I mean, one of these days, Lawrence Wiener might walk down the street and see one of his artworks. And I should mention, though, that apparently some of these works are still out in the public domain. I didn't have time to go and look at them, but they're, in theory, these should all be in the public domain, but there apparently are some that are still out there. So that means that you or I could go out there, figure out what that work was, and put a Lawrence Wiener on our wall. And I meant to mention something. This is something I forgot to say. I think what's really interesting is to see how artists like Lawrence Wiener have kind of evolved over the last 50 years. Um, as part of the Ponza show, I also got to work with Joseph Kassouf and Solowit. Solowit is kind of working very similarly using, gra using drawings as Wiener is rather than text. So when you buy a, a Solowit, you get a certificate of authenticity, a much more formal looking one, I should say, with directions. So it's like three graphite lines over, you know, over overlocking or interlocking or whatever the direction is, or two parallel lines and one, one horizontal line overlapping. And originally, the story is, the apocryphal story is, is that Solowit drew the first one on Jan Debitz's house in an apartment that Jan Debitz went out for the day, and as a thank you for letting him stay there, Solowit put it on his wall. He had, that was the first Solowit wall drawing. And for many years, you could make your own Solowit drawing if you bought it. So if you owned the Certificate of Authenticity, the idea was that anybody could make it. 
But somewhere along the line, I'm not sure exactly when it is, you can't make your Solowit anymore. You own it, but if it's to really be a Solowit, you have to call now the estate, it used to be the studio, and have Solowit trained assistants, painters, draftsmen, come to your home or your museum and create it. So when we created wall drawing number three, which is still on view downstairs for the next few months, it's this beautiful graphite drawing, we had two trained assistants here. We paid them, we paid them a wage, we paid for their, for their meals, for them to stay here, and they spent about three weeks making that piece. So for LeWitt, it couldn't really take any form. It, the idea of this, this idea, or this, and it's very much an ideal idea that it could be an instruction and anyone could make it, clearly wasn't working because I think LeWitt, given the nature of what he was making, had some investment in the final form. You know, and, Lewitt, and, 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 and Wiener kind of let go of that. And then another interesting case is Joseph Kasuth. Joseph Kasuth is a conceptual artist who was known for literally taking the, the definition of a word out of a dictionary, printing it on a large photostat, and he originally he would stretch that photostat or put it on canvas, but basically that photostat, and stretch it on, a, on, on some stretcher bars so it looked like a painting, actually. So when we acquired our two Joseph Kasuths from Ponza, here came the two paint, these two works that look like paintings. And I had to contact the studio about something, so I wrote to them and I said, we've acquired these works, I'm trying to get some background information. And they said, oh no, you can't show those. You need to show it in this form. And that's a very interesting idea, because now, now Joseph Kasuth, 50 years later, prefers that the work of art be shown. It's printed on this very kind of flat surface, and it's on a metal surface, and it sticks to the wall very close. It's very close to the wall. It no longer resembles an object. It's you know, almost adhered to the wall. And it no longer looks like a painting, which I, I always thought he was trying to challenge with this whole idea of a photostat and dictionary definition. And so I think it raises this question as to how museum and collectors deal with artists. And once an object leaves your studio, does an artist have the right to have you show it in a different form? So on one hand, conceptual artists aren't supposed to care about the material form. But in the case of Kasuth, he's changed his mind. And because we wanted to work with him and do what he wanted, we produced these new versions of the dictionary definitions and put them on view. We still have the old ones, though, and you know, I think many of us consider those the works of art. I think what's going to be interesting is eventually when Joseph Kasuth passes away and his estate has to handle this, and what is the work of art? I mean, it brings on all these different ideas. I mean, as a rule, if a painter sends a work of art, sends a painting out into the world, as a rule, he doesn't have a chance to like, make it again or tell you how to make it. So I think it's, it's bringing up you know, time, the market, all of these different issues have really made conceptual art, artists grapple with these ideas and what was once really this idealistic vision and notion has had to change. And Wiener, I think, has, has probably had to change the least, though I, I also did some research and you can, if you want to buy a Lawrence Wiener text piece, you're probably going to end up paying six figures for it at auction. Those are how, how some have gone. So what first started as reduced on that little blue piece of paper has become a commodity in itself, in, in part because Wiener's so important. Does anyone have any other questions? about, and you had mentioned how you know the idea was to be more populist, that anybody could do this, and, and that, that sort of dichotomy of exactly, like, as an artist seems to be living off of his art, right. but then it being available for everyone, and I guess in some ways there being some of it in the public domain deals with that, but I don't know, it's, it sort of reminds me, it makes me think of uh, people who have come later in more of the graffiti art forms like Chipper Ferry, I mean, you could, he would like email, email you stuff, you just ask him, and he would just send you some stickers, and you could put them up everywhere, and right. it was sort of the same concept of, except maybe more controlled and that, you know, he was giving you the template. And so I'm sort of interested in that idea of that being populist yet 
You have to, you need to make a, make a, living. Make a living. Being a working artist is not yeah. an easy job. <laughs> you know, it's not easy. And working full time as a teacher and then trying to create really important, great work in your studio and in your spare time is a very difficult thing. I think something like Shepherd Fairy, you're talking more about something about reprodu reproducibility because there is no original sticker. You know, if you think about those stickers, you know, or, or posters, they are just, you know, posters, just printed posters like so many other printed posters. And that's a political statement in itself. But you're right, it does raise these questions as to when is it work of art. I mean, I know the National Gallery acquired, I, want, I think it was the Obama, the original painting or the original work of art, and probably, I'm not sure, the medium here, that inspired that famous Obama painting by Shepard Ferry. So the portrait gallery clearly acquired something that was more important than the poster that was plastered everywhere. They acquired something that had some kind of, God forbid, an aura around it. But that's what museums have to do. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, that's, that's what we do. I mean, we collect works of art, you know, whether in, in whatever media they're in. So I think it's a good question. It's interesting that artists are going to have to, like, constantly struggle with that. And with an art market that is so incredibly inflated, and people are spending $80 million for a painting, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. You know, and I think that I'm sure Lawrence Wiener is surprised that his works sell for this now. There are not a lot of them on the market. I actually dug around on recent auction results, and a few of these kind of text pieces have shown up. There are a lot of like multiples and sketches and things, but these pieces don't seem to be coming up as often. Uh huh. Obviously, you have reduced up here multiple times. Do you feel like you could loan this to another institution and have them displayed at the same time as it's displayed? You know, that's a really good question. I was thinking about this morning because it's all the way you can only have one up at any time. And I think, or that was the rule until Mass Mocha did this show that's up for 25, 50 years. And I'm, I'm sure they made a deal with people that you could have it up there and have it up here. The estate was involved in that, and it was originally. I actually don't know. I would have to. I would probably have to do some digging and read a book, or actually, I would probably just approach the studio. I have their email. I should mention that Lawrence Weiner. I was just thrilled to see this. He sends his emails. They're all in capital letters. It's all super fun. I guess I should have been, shouldn't have been surprised, but it was just this wonderful thing that came. But no, that's a really good question. I just didn't have time to search that down this morning. And again, it's thinking about where is the art object? Is it everywhere? You know, can it only be in one material form at a time? And these these are important questions and ones that museums have to struggle with because someone probably may ask to borrow this piece. And if it's on view, we may have to go to the artist and say, are we allowed to do this? I don't think he's really, I would suspect he's a little more flexible about that, but I wouldn't want to speak for him. Anything else? I'm curious if you did loan out the work of art, would that piece of paper that says reduce Lawrence Maynard, would that go no. with it? Or would <laughs> that, that just like that stay in the vault? That stays in the lock vault in the, in the, in the um, registrar's office. We would probably, what would happen is they would send us a loan form, right. and the loan form we would agree to lend the piece, and we would, then what would probably happen is we would send some kind of piece of paper documenting about what it should be, and that, and that we might suggest they contact the artist, but they don't have to contact the artist. Again, they can do whatever they want. Anything else? All right, thank you very much. Thanks for coming to see this. Thank you.